Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on January 5th, 2016, and is titled Child Radical Experiment, The One-Child Policy and the Future Beyond It, in collaboration with Chinafile, and features Mei Fong, Barbara Demick, Gadi Epstein, and an introduction by Susan Jakes. Delighted to welcome you to what is sure to be uh, an excellent discussion and a very timely one. Uh, Timely because uh, today is the uh, day of the official hardcover launch of this book, One China, which one child, which I always call One China, the story of China's most radical social experiment. Um, And um, uh, also timely because uh, as of Uh, January 1st, uh, over the weekend, uh, the one-child policy, uh, which is the subject of this book, um, came to, if not an end, then a major uh, turning point as couples around China, um, some for the first time in 35 years, were um, given more leeway to have uh, two children. So, um, Mei Fong, the author of this book, as most of you undoubtedly know, is a fellow at the New America Foundation. She wrote for the Wall Street Journal uh, in China for many years, where her reporting won numerous awards, including the Pulitzer Prize. Um, she's also taught journalism at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School. Joining her on stage to her far left uh, is Gadi Epstein, who's just back from 12 years uh, reporting in China. Um, as he wanted me to tell you, as thrice bureau chief for the Baltimore Sun, uh, Forbes, and The Economist, and he is now back in New York um, reporting um, reporting for The Economist uh, as the media editor. Uh, And then to Gotti's right is uh, Barbara Demick. Barbara was the Beijing bureau chief for the Los Angeles Times between 2008 and 2014. She is the author of the extraordinary book, Nothing to Envy, Ordinary Lives in North Korea. And she's currently on leave uh, working on her next book. Thank you. Uh, Welcome. Thanks for coming out. Um, And thanks to both May and Barbara for being here uh, to talk about May's uh, moving and a wonderful book. Um, in October, China announced that the one-child policy was history, uh, although actually it's now becoming a two-child policy. Um, but we can pretty confidently say uh, the one-child policy will be an ignominious chapter in, in human history. Uh, Wang Feng, a, dom- a demographer who lobbied hard for well more than a decade, amongst many, for China to change its policy, and I think all of us have spoken to him uh, before, has famously called the one-child policy uh, the worst mistake the Communist Party of China has made, or at least ranked it up there with the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. His argument, and I think an argument that is supported well in Mei Feng's book, is that the damage is done has been broad, severe, and prolonged across generations. It has damaged the lives of mothers and would-be mothers, of children without siblings, or who have given up for adoption, or, or sold. Um, uh, of bare branches, single men who outnumber women of their generation and who are at risk of becoming jiaosu, or losers, to put it politely, um, of now aging parents with only one child to care for them, if any. It is also, as May writes really movingly in her, in her book, uh, scarred the lives of the enforcers of the one-child policy themselves. 
and irrevocably torn the fabric of the communities they live in and work in, um, where they've forced abortions and uh, sterilizations. Um, the repercussions will live on for decades. Um, and I think that's what we're, where we're going to start today. Um, because um, the repercussions are sort of where you started getting interested in, in this topic, right? I wanted you to talk about a little bit how you got into interested in the topic and what led you to writing. Well, thanks, Gotti. Um, the one-child policy had been going on for, you know, close to three decades by the time I started um, in working in China. And at the time, it was actually, it felt like it had receded to the background a little bit. This was early 2000s. China's economy was on the upswing. And... Uh, there was this sense of you know, go, go China, you know, everything was going better. And, and people were really optimistic. So the issues of, you know, forced abortion, sterilizations felt that, you know, it was something that happened maybe in the recent past um, in, in the countryside, but it wasn't such a big issue anymore. At least that's, that was certainly the, the feeling I had, and, and I think many of us had, maybe because we lived in the cities. It, um, so I think for me, the trigger point came about, um, and there were little things all along that you sort of saw, you know, for example, in 2003, um, I was covering the factory beat in China. I, w I was in Hong Kong. I would regularly make trips to Dongguan and the southern manufacturing region to write about how um, China had become the factory of the world. I visited things like Brazil factories, toenail clipper cities, you know, and, and it was a town that produced nothing but jeans, you know, just jeans, jeans, jeans. Um, but even in 2003, I started hearing from factory owners. They were saying, look, oh, we don't have enough workers. Uh, we're running out of workers. We're finding it hard to hire workers. And it was actually, it felt very new then. You know, even then, people were saying, well, no, I mean, China's the most populous nation. How could you possibly run out of people so quickly? And then the answer, you know, on hindsight, it looks so easy to say the one-child policy, but actually at the time when I talked to economists and all, they were saying, no, 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 it's not going to hit so soon. Don't worry about it. This is just a short-term anomaly, but on hindsight, this was the beginning of the end for China's manufacturing, and that was 2003. So I came across these little bits of things that sort of, you know, made you think about it, but the trigger point was 2008. Anybody remember what 2008 was? The Olympics, right? Beijing. This was China's big coming out party, and that was the whole country was all gearing up for it. Um, in August 8, 8808, very lucky day. But, uh, which also happens to be my birthday, by the way. <laughs> um, and um, so, uh, but before that happened in March, uh, in May, sorry, uh, there was a, a big uh, unexpected event, which was the earthquake um, in Sichuan. And um, I was actually, at that time in Kunming, I was trying to sneak across the border to go to Burma to cover the Cyclone Argus. Remember that one? That was when Burma was actually closed up. They weren't letting in any journalists. And I, was, I couldn't get across, I was, so I was very disappointed. I was trying to get back to Beijing, and I flew across. And I missed the story, because when I was flying across, the earthquake happened under me. And so when I landed in Beijing and I turned on my BlackBerry, I was like, oh my gosh, what happened? Um, you know, this thing happened, I've, I've totally missed it. All my colleagues were already on their way to Chengdu, and I felt like I missed the story. But then, um, then I decided, well, okay, there has to be another story. And then, and then so I thought... Okay, well, Sichuan has a lot of guest workers. They work all across China. They're sort of like China's Appalachia. And I thought, well, what would it be like to follow a group of Sichuanese people back home and, and record how it went? 
And so I went to the train station and I found a group of construction workers, both male and female, who were trying to get back home to Sichuan, uh, which is a distance, I think, b between uh, Beijing to uh, where they live, was something like between New York and Chicago. Uh, and maybe it would be easier to fly, but these were peasants, so they were very poor and they could only afford to take trains, buses, and things. So it took a three-day uh, journey for us. And the end was not good. Most of them discovered family members who were dead. Many discovered their children were killed. And this is the part where I realized that there was something else going on there because I didn't know that Sichuan, that area where the, close to the epicenter was actually a testing ground for the one-child policy. So before they launched uh, the one-child policy in 1980, they tested it in several areas first. This was one of the areas they were very coercive and very successful, and that was a, um, that gave them um, the, the, the sort of reassurance that this would be a, a good thing that they could manage to do this nationwide. The results there were very good. But of course, 30 years down the line, when um, the earthquake happened, not only were children killed, many of them were only children. And so that was the start of the book for me. Um, you know, yeah. Well, I mean, and uh, that passage where you're on the train with them and they're getting phone calls and updates, some of them are getting specific news but they're more getting general news that so many children have died. Uh, that school has lost, what it was, like 180 children or something like the, the Tong family, their 15-year-old. Uh, yeah. And uh, they're, the mother's presuming, I mean, that must be, you're standing right with them in tight quarters. I can't imagine that kind of reporting experience. It must have been kind of seared into your... Uh, well, you know, we all have this. Um, I think one of the first things we start off with is interviewing, um, you know, um, uh, survivors of disasters, relatives who bereaved. And, and that was one of my first jobs when I was a crime reporter in Singapore. They like to send the young girl reporters to the um, uh, bereavement homes. You know, they always thought we would be sympathetic and, you know, and relatives would talk to us more easily. But it was always a very unfun part of the job, right? In some sense, people would see us as carrion, you know, vultures, prey. And so I struggled with that a little bit, but I felt they had a, a, a the story was, was very important. The burden was even greater because of the one, these were their only children, right? I mean, in this case for the tongues, it was their one child. Not and in the case of the tongues, actually, the tongues. but okay. in other, many, many On cases the they yeah. were. Um, and um, one of the first stories I did soon after that was about a miner, uh, a, a phosphate miner, who was 50, he, within three weeks of the death of his teenage daughter, he had gone back and had a reverse vasectomy. Because this is one of the things, not only did you only have one child, in many cases, after that you had to be sterilized. Uh, that was part of the package. So, you know, so years down the line, uh, something happens, then all these parents were desperate. So within a matter of weeks, many of them were rushing back to the hospitals. And it might seem kind of cruel and callous, you know, when you're still mourning your child, but there was this whole pressure of time going on. So in his case, um, he was 50, his wife was 45. Um, he, he had to have this because he felt, you know, I have to do this. You know, I talked to them, I met them in their home village, and they were saying, you know, we have... Our neighbors are avoiding us because we have no children now. They think that we have, we're going to just be this useless hanger-ons and bother them. So we just feel like we can't exist. And after I wrote that story, I actually had a strange email from a, a doctor in America where she had had IVF. She had several fertilized embryos, and she offered to give her fertilized embryos to this 
minor in Sichuan. She said, I don't know how they would deal with having a, a, a white Caucasian child in a, in a Chinese village, but I want, I'm so touched by it. And, and that was the strangest, you know, uh, sort of a back offer that it, 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 couldn't, it didn't work. It couldn't have worked, but there were many reasons why, but it, it was intriguing. Well, what's interesting about that is actually uh, the policy created so many distortions in behavior of, uh, in terms of uh, what happened with your babies and in parenting I mean, of course, there's many other distortions, but this actually touches on something that Barbara worked on a few years ago, which was this talk about at length in your book as well. Um, I don't want to spoil it by describing it. Why don't you tell me what you found in Hunan, right? Um, yeah, Hunan and uh, Guizhou. I mean, starting maybe 2001, 2002, um, you know, there was um, something of a shortage of babies for adoption. And um, the, the family planning services who were in charge of enforcing the one-child policy um, began confiscating babies from families who had violated um, the, the policy. Um, you know, one of the horrible things about the one-child policy was this, it created this whole repressive enforcement mechanism where inspectors were like looking for diapers on clothes lines and listening for crying babies. And it was very intrusive. I mean, in some places, women had to show when they were menstruating to you know, prove they weren't pregnant. So um, um, these family planning people um, you know, started um, punishing offenders by taking their extra babies. And uh, I found, um, I guess I documented seven or eight cases of them, but there were clearly you know, cases in the hundreds. And, you know, this is something that's coming up increasingly among um, baby girls, many of whom are now adults or teenagers, who were adopted um, from China, wondering, you know, why were they given up? I mean, certainly there were, at the early years of the one-child policy, there were many, many abandoned baby girls. I mean, the Chinese preferred to have boys, or some preferred to have boys, but over time, and as um, sex selection became more common, there were not that many abandoned babies. So they were um, just, you know, basically grabbing them. But you know, it's it's hard to say: are they grabbing them? Are they coercing them? Family planning had a lot of power. They could, um, you know, knock down people's houses. They could get you fired from your job. Um, you know, in some cases, they beat people to death. Not that many, but there were some. And um, they had ways of coercing people into giving up their babies, not all cases. Um, and you know, it was, it was very interesting to me dealing with the um, Chinese parents whose babies had been taken um, because these were girls and they really wanted them back. You know, it didn't matter if it was the third or the fourth girl. Um, you know, they loved their daughters and they wanted them. Of course, one of the one of the disputes about was how widespread this was. And you, you went into that in a little bit in your book, this um, Dutch woman. Uh, you, did you talk to her after, kind of after Barbara's stories, basically? Yes, I yeah. did. Um, so one of the big questions is China's a big place, right? So were these isolated cases or was it something more widespread? Um, the cases Barbara documented in 2001, um, 2002, yeah, and then there were also cases in 2005 and in 2011. Um, many of them were in Hunan, but there were also other parts of China. So it was clear that 
there was more than just a few isolated cases, as the Chinese authorities claim. How much, we don't know, because the whole system is non-transparent. But uh, people who tried to push and, and find out more, and one of the people I interviewed in the book was this woman called Ina Hutt. And she was, um, the at the time, the head of one of um, the Netherlands' largest adoption agencies called World Children. She was sufficiently worried about it to try and make inquiries of her own. And she found that, she said there was so much pushback. The Dutch authorities didn't want to help her. The Chinese authorities told her that she had no standing. Um, and, and she went actually into China and did her own investigations. And what she found was she said, she said, it's much more widespread than we think. I cannot in conscience do this job. And so she resigned. And then when I spoke to her at that time, this was about two years ago when we met in New York at the foot of the World Trade Center <laughs> uh, Memorial. Um, and uh, she said, that at that time she had been five years without a job. She couldn't find a job again. She said nobody wanted a whistleblower. Now she's now a head of a, 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 a human trafficking uh, agency, nonprofit, and so she has found work again. But yeah, so that's her. Um, there's a, a guy called Brian Stye, uh, who's in Utah. He's a ex-Mormon. And he ad uh, adopted several girls from China also, and he's, um, he leads a small research outfit which looks at the backgrounds of adoptees. And he's also been one of the people that firmly believes that um, the system is, is much more um, widespread and, and corrupted than we think. What I found interesting about this was, you know, many of us here know or, or, or have friends who have adopted children from China, uh, right? Uh, I bet, you know, any just a race of hands, anybody who knows of or... <laughs> Well, yeah, see, there were 120,000 girls, um, mostly girls, uh, adopted from China as a result of the, you know, after the one-child policy was implemented, and I think roughly about 70,000 of them are in America right now. Some of them are already hitting their 20s and starting to ask questions about where they came from and how they came to be where they are. But what I found was interesting was, uh, in addition to talking to the parents of the peasant parents or the, adopt, uh, the birth parents, I also talked to the adoptive parents here in the States and asked them about what they thought about it. I mean, how would you feel if you, th you thought your daughter was trafficked? You thought you were doing a good thing by raising this unwanted child and taking her away from horrible conditions in Chinese orphanages. How would you like to, f to discover that maybe that wasn't quite the story that you were told? And what I found interesting was there was a huge resistance on the part of many adoptive parents here in terms of wanting to explore the truth or, or hearing sort of the unwelcome truth about it. People don't want to know. Um, so people like Brian Stye who talk about the, the ugly side of adoption, they are very unpopular within the adoptive community. And um, I remember I talked to a woman who was a Midwestern media executive. I said to her, and she had adopted two children from China, and I said, Hey, so how do you feel? You 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 you're in the news. You know this stuff. Um, so you, you you're not you're cognizant of the fact that there's a possibility that maybe your children might have been trafficked or bought. Or how do you how do you reconcile that? And she said, Well, you know, I thought about it a few years ago when uh, my daughter was hanging the Christmas decorations in the wall, and I thought, Well, at least she's hanging the Christmas decorations. She's not making them on a factory line in Dongguan. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I get what she means, but at the same time, what are you trying to say? That, you know, richer people should have more rights to, to children than, you know, where do you draw the line? I, I, I met 
parents uh, in, in China who have lost their children, and I met children who have been adopted who are clearly in much better circumstances here financially, everything else. And it's hard to imagine, you know, you, know, you, you can see the sort of lives they would have led if they had been, you know, back home. But at the same time, what are you trying to say? That it's okay to steal children, you know? When, when I interviewed some of the people, family planning people who had been taking children. It was very interesting speaking to them because they felt they were doing the right thing. The, the way these um, social service agencies were set up in China was the, the revenues from placing the girls for adoption were put into the um, social services. $3,000. Yeah, $3,000. They get, you know, whatever the other fees are, $3,000 cash goes to basically part of this uh, social services system, and they were using the money to support disabled children, unadoptable, abandoned children, and many of these people felt they were doing the right thing. They said, you know, this is a very poor family. They had their fourth daughter. There's so many children, you know, the money, you know, they weren't, when you interviewed them, they weren't necessarily, you know, evil people, but this was system. Yeah. Well, this was what I thought was one of the more powerful parts of the book. Well, for me, partly because I had an interest in it, having talked to some enforcers myself for a story last, uh, last year, um, uh, enforcers who were being retrained. Um, I think you actually mentioned in your um, um but I, your passages where you talk to enforcers or former enforcers are remarkable ones in the book. I wanted to read uh, one of them here, several. Um, and this is sort of just describing the system, uh, but then it gets into this one of these enforcers. Uh, what if a woman didn't want more children but, what would, but would prefer not to be sterilized? What if a couple got pregnant with their second child, say, three years after the first, instead of five? Uh, the usual mode of punishment was fines. Parents of children born out of plan would be hit with fines between five and ten times their annual disposable income. Quote, if the couple is too poor to pay, we'll take things from their house, but only in a few cases, said Huang. TVs were a favorite, he said, worth a villager's whole annual income, as were tables, bicycles, and washing machines. These items were usually collected by a team of ten, ten part-time enforcers, usually, quote, strong, healthy young men, and sold off, and the proceeds were kept by the township. To Huang, these actions did not count as coercion. Rather, he called such tactics persuasion. One of the most difficult tasks Huang had to do was persuade women to be sterilized, he said. Many women feared the procedure. Side effects, such as excessive bleeding, were not uncommon, especially given the conveyor belt manner in which some of these procedures were done. The village women tried to bargain, said Huang, some asked to use barrier contraceptives instead or promised not to have more than two children. Quote, but it was my job to get people to do the operation or else I would not be able to accomplish my target, said Huang. I can't possibly guarantee they won't have another baby with just a promise. And that kind of gets into this. And actually, I, there were a couple other examples I won't read. You, got, you have this great passage right after that from the chain-smoking Che, um, uh, che Yue, uh, uh, Yue Lian, Moon Lotus, and her rationalizing of her persuading um, of people. And then you have Gao, the woman who came to the U.S. and just talked about how she had to bifurcate her identity. Monster during the daytime and family, you know, wife and mother um, the rest of the time. Uh, and then Uncle Lee, um, Uncle Lee's story about the pregnant woman who waded into the pond up to her neck 
begging not to be taken away, not to have her child taken away. Um, it must be clear, as you, make, as, you, as, you, as you would write about in the book, it must be made clear that the system was designed to turn these people into monsters. Financial incentives, um, most importantly, there are these veto targets. Yeah, the targets he's talking about uh, from as early as early 90s, basically they would, their careers could be derailed if they didn't meet these targets. Um, did you develop, did you feel like you developed um, some more empathy than you expected from these encounters with these or deeper understanding of the one child policy was a, a, a you know a very unpopular decision you can imagine so intrusive so the only way that they could make it work was with a stick big hard stick right initially when it was first implemented um, it was chaos they couldn't make it really work. A lot of people, you know, a lot of problems. China's a big place. It's very hard to enforce. Some places were very strict. Some places, eh. So then, um, so the central authority figured at some point, okay, we need to really um, figure out how to make this work. And so they came up with an idea, a system of accountability called yi piao fou jie. Um, one vote veto is Lucy Trent. The idea was, if you're a garden level official in some small town or whatever, Birth quotas were part of your job. It didn't matter if you were doing economic stuff or something else. If you were, t if you, all part of your job, and that's the only part that if you get a, if you don't meet the birth quotas, you get a black mark. That's the one vote veto. And it didn't matter however well you did and whatever else you did, that black mark counts against you. And so what will happen is you could lose your job, you could uh, lose major pay, um, and so that system um, created a very hard stick for the enforcers, and in turn the enforcers were therefore harsh upon the people, they, they had to do it. Um, and of course, with such a system, it's also right for corruption, right? Uh, basically, um, it was so unpopular, right? So people wanted to get around it. There were all sorts of ways, you know. You know, one thing you find about Chinese people—they're very ingenious. You know, xiang ban fa, they'll think of something to do. <laughs> so, you know, I write about stories about their fake twins. You know, some people would register two siblings as twins when they were born, very close together. Um, you'd have fake marriages, so you divorce and get married again. You you go and have multiple children. You know, IVF treatment, so you, you know, buy two get one free kind of a situation. Um, and so, um, and, and, and some of it was money under the table too. Um, so this was an issue, I think, uh, coming forward uh, because eventually at some point, um, forced abortions, um, I believe, you know, you know there, there were less of them over time, but the fines uh, were, were a nice, you know, sort of a steady stream of income. It's, it's tax, right, for not, you don't have to provide much in the way of services, but you get this steady stream of revenue. And so, um, that became a big issue and became, and there's one of the reasons why the one child policy became so entrenched. Uh, all this nice, easy money coming in. Right, not both for the system, uh, for localities, also for individuals. I mean, you're talking in the book about people getting bonuses for the number of sterilizations they, they were able to persuade women to, to yeah, get. Yeah, so one um, of the guys I talked to is Uncle Lee, right? I call him Uncle Lee because he didn't want to be named. He was just an ordinary garden-level variety. Um, you know, uh, he told me he in his early years he had started off just being an official. It was his first job out of college. Um, and uh, he, he would make, like, bonuses would be like 50% of his income from however many, you know, targets he had. You know, the more sterilizations and abortions you had. And I, 
the 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 more your pay, base pay would be inflated because um, it wasn't very much you know I think three thousand renminbi which isn't all that bad it's not bad but you can definitely inflate it up and there are ways you can inflate it even more let's say um, in Kaohsiung this woman who told me she said um, there are cases for example if you have to go out of town in some places you need a certificate to say you're not pregnant. So in order to get that certificate, you slip a little money under the table to the family planning enforcer. You know, so there's this whole grease system going on there. Right, and it did become very entrenched. And why? Why do you think? I mean, people have been lobbying, like Wang Feng, who I mentioned in my introductory remarks, and others. Uh, the more liberal demographers um, and advocates have been arguing for um, a loosening or even elimination of the one-child policy altogether for more than a decade. Um, why do you think it? finally happened? What, um, what do you think finally pushed it over the edge to actually at least loosen it to become a two-child policy? And then, go ahead. Sorry. I think um, China's in a slow-moving demographic disaster, right? Um, you're going to, you already have a system where you have too many men, not enough women. You're going to have a system where you have too many old people and not enough young workers very soon. And, um, and, then, and so, you know, there's a sense that, you know, you have to sort of avert this a little bit. And we talk about, you know, okay, so 30 million men with no women, Canadian-sized population of horny bachelors. Um, okay, so maybe, you know, and most of these are the most disenfranchised and poorest of farmers. Maybe the Communist Party can swallow that one, you know, just, you know, figure out a way to maybe get them to go colonize Xinjiang or, or, or figure out something. But uh, the aging issue, I think, is the biggest one. Uh, China currently has a, you know, the, the population, that big population that... that was the manufacturing boom, the population born before the one-child policy. That big group is aging, and they're living longer. That's nothing to do with the one-child policy. It's just, you know, life and technology. But they have far fewer young workers to support them. And that is definitely, I think, bar none, the worst effect, because that's something that you're going to see not just in the countryside, but in the cities. You know, China currently has, I think, um, I think five working adults to support one retiree. In a matter of 20 years, that's just going to jump to uh, 1.2 working adults. To, you know, so so that's, that's huge. I mean, if China's senior population were to form their own country, they'd be the world's third largest country. You know, So it'd be China, India, senior China. <laughs> that's how big it is. So you know, when you think about that as an aging population, China already has something like 25% of the world's Parkinson's sufferers. You know, so that's going to jump up to over 60%, and you know, similar numbers for dementia and everything else you, that comes with old age. And you know, we have the same situation in America and Europe. We have a growing society, but that transition is taking only f maybe taking maybe 50 years to work towards. China's going to have that in 25 years, half the amount of time. And yet, they could have seen all that coming 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier, if they had trusted demography as a science better. I mean, and you talk about this in your book, right? That this is one of the more interesting kind of, uh, I, didn't, I didn't really realize how, to what extent they distrusted the science of demography up until about the early 1980s, basically 1981 or so is when they finally developed a sort of population studies after implementing the one-child policy. That's like a legless man teaching someone how to run, right? Um, you know, they, they didn't really have very good numbers or census figures when they actually started the one-child policy. Um, and you think that all these things down the line, it's not rocket science to figure it out. But the interesting thing is the one-child policy was designed by rocket scientists. Right, <laughs> yeah. but not without help. And this is another thing. I was wondering whether you can talk a bit about the Western influence because... Um, 
you, t uh, you talked about the ideas that were circulating at this time. Uh, Paul Ehrlich's um, the um, population, population bomb, bomb yeah. the Club of Rome's limit uh, limits of growth. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Do you do you put a lot of the blame? I mean, those were influential ideas. And then this guy, uh, what's his name? O uh, the scientist uh, who Gertz, uh, Jean, the mathematician, uh, Olster, the math who just happened to run into your rocket scientist uh, and presented his problem of solving overpopulation on a, a theoretical hypothetical island. He goes off to China and starts the one child policy. And how much how much of influence do you um, I mean how much do you attribute it to the influence of the West? Well, the thing about, you know, the 60s and 70s was a period of time when the idea of a population explosion was was very much an idea du jour at the time, you know, um, China wasn't the only one worried about it. Um, there were all these treaties and, and concerns and, and even scenarios drawn up by MIT um, where they sort of envisioned that basically by this time we would all be dead or, you know, in severe dire straits because, um, you know, the planet would have depleted its resources. We had too many people. Um, what they didn't account for were things like the Green Revolution, which actually resulted in Earth producing enough uh, food. And also they didn't account for the fact that, you know, things like women's lib and, and all those things would result in uh, smaller families already. Um, but it was definitely an idea at the time. People were very worried about it. But only China had that kind of a, a structure that took those ideas and put them into reality. I mean, a lot of these... Um, concerns by people were, you know, academics working out mathematical formula. Or as you pointed out in India, quickly became unpopular uh, and in a democracy. Yes, forced, Indira Gandhi. Forced Indira Gandhi out um, when she had forced sterilizations in yeah. India. But let's not forget, you know, Indira Gandhi and China's Minister of Population both received gold medals from the UN for their work at the time. So, yeah, so this, this was you know, it was sexy. It was considered a good thing. Right, and you point out there's South Korea had two too much. Two is too much. Stop at two. Yeah, I, I grew up in Malaysia, and right next door to me is Singapore. Singapore is smaller than New York City, you know. I mean, tiny population, but even they were concerned about the population figures. And I would, I remember seeing as a child posters of, um, you know, uh, propaganda posters, you know, one loaf of bread, many hands reaching for it, you know. Uh, you know, you, you too many kids, bad and, thing. And now today, we have the problem of uh, many old people and only one child per, per set of parents. Yeah, and now um, Singapore is, for example, trying to encourage all women, you know, have two, have three, have more. <laughs> and, and with these children who are, one of the, another interesting um, chapter in your book is about the behavioral differences of this generation. Talk about a study that compares cohort, it's like 400 kids, cohort, or, or a, a maybe a, longitudinal, a bit longitudinal, of um, kids who were born just before the one-child policy and were just after. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between them? I mean, the little empress syndrome um, is one of the more, you know, fudgiest, difficult bits to write about in a book. How do you characterize a whole generation? You know, um, there are certain broad traits you can draw, but you obviously can't say that it applies to everyone. Um, you know, for every, you know, buddy who says, well, I know they're spoiled and over entitled because they're only children. There, there are plenty of uh, other people who say, no, you know, I know plenty of good kids from China who are only children and, you know, so where do you draw? But certainly, generationally speaking, we are shaped by our influences. Baby boomers develop certain traits because of the certain generation. The Balinghua and Jolinghua of China have certain, um, you know, strong factors that create this, um, that what, what they are. And one of them is the one-child policy when you have um, a third of, of, of your nation as only children. The question is, what is this? 
uh, effect of the little emperor? Are they all spoiled, entitled brats, or um, or something else? And what is that something else if not, you know? Um, so. I read a whole bunch of social studies. I interviewed a lot of sociologists, and I talked to you know I plenty of uh, only children in China and non only children in China, and um, you know the social studies were inconclusive most of the most part. Most of them tended to measure um, only children with children with siblings, and so and the data and that was kind of fudgy. Some found differences, some found no differences, some found good differences, some found bad differences. The study that you mentioned is the one by Australian economists, and that was an interesting study because instead of measuring, um, you know, only siblings, uh, children, only children and children with siblings, it measured cohorts. So one born after the one-child policy, one before, and they found very marked differences. Um, and most of this, uh, the, the conclusions were, um, the children born after 1980 tended to be more neurotic. Um, less optimistic, um, less um, more risk averse, which I found interesting, right? Because and, and and that one to me struck me. I mean, obviously it's only one study; you'd have to be replicated. Less trusting and right. less trusting, and and I found some of it to be quite interesting because it suggested things like, um, you know, would you would you wouldn't you be more risk averse if you know you were aware of the fact that you have so many expectations on you, if you have, um, you know, not just parents, but grandparents. You know, we are so used to see, thinking of the little empress as a child, um, surrounded by six doting adults. Anybody who's ever been in China, I'm sure you've seen it. You know, you go to a restaurant, you go to a park, there's a cute little kid maybe wearing those slash pants and a cute little fat buttocks, you know, winking out at you and about, you know, four or five adults hovering around. But that, that, that triangle turns. You know, the, the children of the one-child policy are now in their 30s, the first generation. So that wheel is turning. So he's 30-something, his parents are 50-something, his grandparents are 80-something. And so instead of being the uh, base and the desire and the recipient of all the largesse, he's now going to have to give back. And so, you know, in that case, wouldn't you be more risk-averse? I mean, I've interviewed some people. One of the people I talk about is this guy called Genova Chen. He's a superstar. He is... Um, uh, he, he, uh, he creates his own games, and his games are like movies, and he's, his stuff has been in the Smithsonian. Um, he's very well known in the game. He's an only child. He's the first generation only children, and he's married now. And he said, you know, I don't think I can have more than one child myself because I feel like I can barely take care of my own parents. And, and this is a very successful man. You know, we're not talking your average run-of-the-mill guy. So, and so... I, I do sort of wonder, I do not necessarily think that uh, the little emperor generation are, are more spoiled and self-entitled, but I do suspect that they are very overburdened and that burden's only going to worsen as they get older. There's a sense, if your horizons are uh, sort of narrow because of your parental expectations and it's sort of an idea that your leash is so short, um, then, you know, you can't run free. <laughs> did, you, did you find... Um also that the parents developed kind of a cynical attitude towards their children. Um, you know, you wrote about in, um, after the Sichuan earthquake, people were having replacement babies. I mean, it wasn't all about love, was it? It was about somebody in part to take care of you. There is that. Um, I mean, and this kind of delves at the heart of the book. Why do we have children? Right? What is the reasoning for it? Is it some biological imperative? Is it economic? Is it social security? It's a whole complex number of reasons why we have children. And when you throw in government fiat on top of that, then it makes for a very complex uh, uh, cauldron. Um, so there is, I think, an element of, of 
preservation in this because it's not just a question of economic security for a lot of people that have children in China. You don't have the social security net uh, that's as well developed. So certainly having a, a child to support you is, is much more important in the Chinese context. But there's also the strong cultural context because China for, for, for centuries has been all about the family. You know, and so even now, now you pare it down to one, that thread becomes even stronger. Everything about Chinese culture, you're not fully grown until you're married and you have a family. You're not considered an adult. You're very low in a societal totem pole if you're unmarried and you don't have children. So there's a question of social standing too. There's a whole complex reason. And that pressure now, because of the demographic time bomb that you've talked about, is only going to get greater. Especially for, it's already happened for women. You talk the Shengnu, leftover women who are pressured to get married, to have, to have kids. It, oddly, even more so now that there are more men available, <laughs> ratio-wise, um, and perhaps, perhaps because of that, more so, they face more pressure. So you have the, the men who, have, who are bare branches and you have the women who are being pressured in this one-child generation. Could you tell me which, which lot do you think have had it worse um, oh. <laughs> Have men had it worse or women had it worse? I want to get your opinion on this too, Barbara. Um, Okay, so you have been more men than women, um, 30 million more men than women, um, you know, uh, tough breaks for them because there's just no way China is going to be able to import all this uh, women in to fill the shortage. There's just no way. you, you know. um, And um, one of the things I write about in the story is um, I visit a bachelor village uh, in, in central China. Um, and, you know, one of the things is, this bachelor village had virtually no marriageable women because everybody wanted sons. So at this stage, um, they were desperate. So they started trying to look outside. No, this was a village that tended to be very parochial. They only wanted to marry insiders, but needs must. So they started uh, looking for brides outside. And one of the things is the custom of the country is what you call the bride price, Chai Li. Um, and traditionally, from the groom to the bride's family. And because of the shortage, this had gone up something like 10 years farming income. And so what this led to was scams. So this village that I had gone to had three runaway brides. Um, you know, so the story was guy meets girl, um, in, introduced girl um, through a matchmaker. Pay, his family scrapes and borrows all this money to pay for the bride price. They get married. Um, very soon, all the other neighbors are jealous. They're like, hey, you know, you got any other friends you can introduce this to? They ask the bride. The bride says, hmm, I think I got someone. Brings in another friend, get married, exchange the bride uh, price. Happens one more time. Then next thing, poof, all the girls are gone. The money's gone. And the men are lonely. And, and I remember going there. And I met one groom. The other grooms had sort of left and gone out to work. I, I, I thought about what it meant to go to a bachelor village. I was like, I ain't full of lonely, horny men, you know, sort of looking around. It's going to be dangerous, you know. Uh, but actually, you know, it was just like any other village. Most of the men had gone out to work. And, and the, kind of, the idea was, you want to met Merit? You want to dump your wife at home so she can take care of your parents and have the babies while you go out. And, and, and you can sort of see women, when they had more opportunities, would say, heck, I'm not doing that. Bye-bye. I want to live in the city. So... Um, so I, I met this one guy at, who was one of the leftover bachelors who had been duped. And he was actually strangely... Um, uh, chivalrous about it all. He, he, he didn't want to abuse this bride of his who had left. He said she actually called him after she left and apologized. And he said, I, 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 I suspected something was going on, but I was so happy. Uh, I, I, I don't want to blame her. I felt that she had you know, something driving her that made her do this. And, you know, but there he is. He's in limbo. <laughs> and this is not his fault, but he's stuck. So that's the men for you. And um, 
women. Well, there is one side of the one-child policy that has benefited uh, women, and that's urban young women. If you were born in a city after 1980 as a girl child, your chances of getting going to college and getting better educated, better fed, is better than any other time in Chinese history for a female. So it was good for them. But on the other side, now you see this backlash. You know, people want to rush you to get married. Um, there are stories about um, which um, somebody talks, Lita Hong Finch talks about an excellent book called Leftover Women, where uh, marriage registration for property, most of it's in a man's name, 70%. So you're expected to get married to some guy and help service the mortgage on this place, but guess what? Your name's not on, on the bill. So if you divorce, you're stuck. So China's still a very patriarchal society. So even though there's an imbalance now and women theoretically have the upper hand, it's not happening. What I fear is this, what you call a commoditization. I hate that word, it's very academic sounding. The commoditization of women. Um, we see this in a rise to mistress culture. You know, you know. I think one of the books um, I thought about, you know, because when you think about the one-child policy, you think it sounds like Orwell, it sounds like Aldous Huxley. But one of the books I thought was actually very, um, it struck a chord is Margaret Atwood's book called The Handmaid's Tale. Anyone read the book? So the story is about uh, a, pop, a, a country, a fictional country of the future, where the population has been rendered infertile by pollution. So primarily, um, young, fertile women have become a very scarce commodity. And so they become concubines and are traded around. And it's not so difficult to see a parallel in China today, especially when you see about the Ernai and the, and the second wives and the mistress culture that's risen. One of the things I talk on book, I know it's a little scurrilous because it's not hugely representative, is I go to a, a sex factory in Dongguan. It's a, it's a factory that makes life-size sex dolls. The idea is, you know, these are very enterprising men. So the manufacturing industry is gone for, uh, you know, it's, it's gone for a spin. They're looking for high-value products. These are a group of men who used to make office furniture. <laughs> But, you know, um, it, manufacturing costs have gone up because labor costs have gone up. So it's like, okay, we want to manufacture something else that is a very high-value item. So what do we look at that is a shortage, there's going to be a huge demand for? Okay, life-size sex dolls. So these are, you know, and it's quite, they're very realistic looking. Um, uh, they, you, you can customize Eminent, them. Eminent uh, China watcher Paul French uh, took this away from your book that it, it has, uh, they have tough nipples. He, <laughs> yeah, um, I think that uh, was his biggest takeaway <laughs> from the book. There's a, there's a, yeah, they, 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 they you know, um, and you, you customize them and, 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 they, and they send them out in, in coffin size, you know, big, uh, uh, and it costs about something like 3,000 US dollars. Um, and I talked to the guy and say, so tell me about some of your customers. He says, yeah, well, you know, there was this case where uh, a girl came in and ordered one for her father, uh, and he, he was very specific. He wanted this doll to be able to sing some Teresa Ting songs and say, hi, my name is Lynn. <laughs> and you're like, okay, this is kind of funny, but at the same time, it's not because um, it doesn't point to a good uh, uh, development for women in China. <laughs> I imagine Real women. China will be a big market for the movie Ex Machina, I would think, um, based on that. Uh, I wanted to thank uh, everybody for coming here tonight and, and thank especially Mei Fong and Barbara Demick for this fantastic discussion. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.